Welcome to another episode of Electrify This, a podcast focused on the movement to electrify everything as a key strategy to decarbonize and revitalize our economy. Each month, I connect with experts to explore the policy and market issues underpinning the shift to electrify transportation, buildings, and industry. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, Director of Electrification with Energy Innovation. Today's episode, the Inflation Reduction Act, what it means for the U.S. workforce, consumers, and climate. The Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, or the IRA, which was signed into law by President Biden in August, is the most significant climate legislation in United States history. Several independent studies find that the IRA's $370 billion in climate and clean energy investments could help cut U.S. greenhouse gas emissions roughly 40% by 2030, and combined with state action and other federal regulations will be a game changer, not just for the climate, but also for consumers and the American workforce. There are numerous provisions, incentives, and funding programs to support electrification of transportation, buildings, as well as some industry, while also jumpstarting the domestic supply chain for clean energy technologies. With us today to delve into the details of what's in the bill and what it means for the U.S. economy, Americans, households, and the growing clean energy workforce are two leading experts in the field. First, we have Jessica Ektish, the Vice President of Legislation and Federal Affairs with the Blue-Green Alliance, which is an organization that unites labor unions and environmental organizations to solve today's environmental challenges in ways that create and maintain quality jobs and build a thriving, equitable economy. She directs the Alliance's federal legislative policy and partnerships on climate, energy, and infrastructure issues. Prior to this role, she worked with the Sierra Club as a Washington representative and worked on a range of federal issues, including public health, clean air, and water protections. Welcome to the show, Jessica. Thanks, Sarah. Happy to be here. Next, we have Mark Kreswick, a Senior Policy Director with the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, or ACEEE, where he works at the local, state, utility, and federal levels to accelerate ambition for energy efficiency, while also centering those most historically overburdened and underserved in our communities. Prior to joining ACEEE, Mark managed federal and international policy for RMI's Carbon-Free Buildings Program, and he led clean energy campaigns with the Sierra Club for nearly 15 years, and has held numerous other roles and board positions in his tenured career. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Sarah. It's delighted to be here. Well, I am really excited to speak with both of you and know you guys have been living literally in the trenches on... Inflation Reduction Act work for the last year, if not longer, um, and there's just so much to discuss here. So I think let's let's dive in. Um, I'm going to start with uh, both of you and and give you both the opportunity to give us a rundown of some of the key provisions within the Inflation Reduction Act. And I'll start with you, Jessica. Maybe you can start by walking us through the most meaningful provisions for particularly the transportation sector, uh, but also those that touch the clean energy workforce. Yeah, absolutely. And and thanks for having me. So I I think it's really not an exaggeration to say that the Inflation Reduction Act is truly groundbreaking and really in how it addresses not only climate change and invests in the clean economy, but really how it does that in a way that supports and creates good paying jobs across the country. 
And I can talk about a couple of the key provisions that are that are going to deliver this, and I'll highlight a couple of really important ones. So first, kind of on the clean energy side, it invests hundreds of billions of dollars in clean energy tax credits. So think wind, solar, energy storage. And that investment is tied for the first time ever to labor standards that are really proven to ensure that the jobs created by those investments pay fair wages, protect workers' health and safety, and really support and grow pathways into these long-term careers, including for workers of color and other parts of the population that have historically been left out of these jobs. So specifically, the bill does this in two key ways through one, wage requirements. So that requires that the taxpayer or the developer of these projects ensure that workers on the project are paid prevailing wages during the construction of the project. And then second, through apprenticeship requirements. So again, the taxpayer or the developer has to ensure that qualified apprentices are doing the work on these projects. And then in addition to those labor standards, the bill also couples these clean energy tax credits with what are called Buy America preferences. And those really help ensure that our emerging clean economy supports domestic manufacturing industries as well. Uh, We know that, you know, right now, too many parts of the clean technology supply chain are coming from foreign suppliers, a lot of whom use exploitative labor practices or environmental, uh, environmentally detrimental practices. So these provisions will support and drive U.S. manufacturing by creating high demand for domestically produced clean technology materials. Um, The bill also includes a couple of provisions that are really going to ensure that these tax credits and these investments go to historically marginalized communities. So they'll provide additional economic development and job creation opportunities for disadvantaged communities, including those that have been disproportionately impacted by pollution, as well as the transition to a clean economy. And then lastly, the last one I'll highlight um, in terms of the transportation sector specifically. The IRA really applies a whole-of-government approach to addressing the transportation sector, again, while creating and preserving those good union jobs and supporting a domestic supply chain. And in particular, that includes clean vehicle tax credits for new and used car buyers, as well as commercial fleets. And it puts ambitious, but we feel like really achievable requirements on qualifying vehicles supply chains. And it brings those supply chain requirements within reach for car and truck manufacturers who have already made significant commitments to onshoring their battery supply chains through major investments in the domestic auto manufacturing supply chain. So there's a lot more in the bill, but those are some of the key provisions that are going to be hugely significant and will ensure that the bill not only really dramatically reduces emissions, but also provides high quality jobs in the clean economy and really prioritizing those jobs in the places in the communities that need them most. Yeah, you're totally right. There are so many provisions and they all um, really stack up to send a strong signal to industry writ large that we're, we want to move in a new direction and a better direction and a more sustainable direction, not just for uh, kind of supply chain issues, but also just for the seizing the opportunity to, to ensure U.S. competitiveness as these markets grow globally. So it's, I think it's a really exciting set of provisions and thanks for the rundown on all of them. We'll dig a little bit more into some of them here in a minute. Uh, but Mark, uh, can you give us a similar rundown of the provisions that impact particularly buildings and homes, but any other meaningful provisions that you see uh, coming out of the IRA? 
Absolutely. And as Jessica said, the Inflation Reduction Act, the funding in, uh, that it contains, is a transformational program uh, that will really improve the quality and the health of buildings across the country, particularly for low-income households that have long struggled to afford energy um, and to uh, maintain affordable housing. It's really, and it's not just the Inflation Reduction Act, it's also the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act that contains similar benefits for households across the country. There are five big buckets uh, that we like to talk about. One is a whole suite of tax credits um, that are available for homeowners. Um, if you have, if you pay a if you pay taxes uh, and uh, have that appetite, um, then you can get up to two thousand dollars for a heat pump starting in 2023. Um, for you can get hundreds of dollars for more efficient um, water heaters as well. If, if you are a for multifamily housing, uh, for commercial buildings, there are two different tax credits for improving efficiency and decarbonizing, including the 45L tax credit as well as the 179D tax credit. And again, similarly, thousands of dollars available per unit uh, for uh, commercial building operators and owner op operators of multifamily affordable housing. Those are just the tax credits. There's also um, rebate programs that are available for improving efficiency of homes uh, and for electrifying homes. Those rebate pro programs include more than $9 billion for those purposes, um, for uh, including electrifying your homes, everything from wiring to induction stoves to again, those heat pumps that I mentioned earlier. Those heat pumps are particularly important because they can heat and cool your home very efficiently uh, and effectively going forward. The thing about those electrification rebates is that in order to be eligible, they're specifically targeted to low-income households and middle-income households, those earning less than 150% of their area median incomes. Even better, for households earning lower than 80% of their area median income, truly low-income households across the country, those rebates can cover 100% of the cost of electrification, of decarbonizing and moving away from health-damaging fossil fuels inside homes. Another big bucket of funding for affordable housing is more than a billion dollars to housing and urban development HUD programs um, and HUD-assisted housing across the country for improving energy efficiency and improving resilience, making uh, affordable housing uh, more uh, stronger uh, in the face of the extreme weather events that we're seeing across the country. Um, finally, um, there is a within the Inflation Reduction Act, a very flexible bucket of funding, more than $27.5 billion that will flow through the Environmental Protection Agency uh, for financing zero carbon technologies um, with a big chunk of this money, particularly focused, as Jessica mentioned, in overburdened and underserved communities. That money can be used for, for a lot of things, but we'd hope to see uh, the biggest uh, investment from that those pots of money into affordable housing, low-income housing, uh, because that has the greatest potential benefits in terms of lower energy burdens, uh, improving the health and air quality inside uh, homes and making for a healthier living for everyone uh, in our communities. And finally, those are just the programs in the Inflation Reduction Act. I mentioned the Infrastructure Investment Jobs Act. There's more than $3 billion for weatherizing homes, um, again, for those who are under 200% of the federal poverty limit. So this 
whole package, this suite of programs uh, to invest in buildings is more than uh, $30 billion that will reach more than 10 million households across the country, uh, just having a transformative effect in terms of lowering energy burdens and improving the quality of life uh, across the country. Yeah, it's really quite quite an impressive suite of provisions, as you say, because um, you know we we tend to want to lump housing or buildings into one kind of n- nice package, but the reality is there are so many different types of buildings and so much housing out there and different income levels, different types of buildings, and they all are different age and their requirements to get them. Uh, to even a minimum level of efficiency and performance um, varies substantially. So it's great to see the um, Inflation Reduction Act really targeting each sector with kind of bespoke solutions as opposed to a one-size-fits-all tax incentive, uh, which, as you pointed out earlier, Mark, not everyone has a tax appetite. So (laughs) just the allowance of uh, unique ways to take advantage of funding through rebates or through um, financing programs really quite... uh, unprecedented, I would say, at the federal level, especially. Um, So question back to you both. I think kind of there's the individual provisions and you've sort of touched on their potential for transformation. But big picture, what do you expect? And I'll start with you, Mark, just because you just left off. What do you expect the buildings provisions as a whole to really do for the building sector in the coming decade and both, you know, for consumers and individuals, but also for climate? Absolutely. The building provisions are going to reach more than 10 million households, as I mentioned just now, Um, and that will have the impact of reducing climate pollution by more than 100 million metric tons, just dramatically reducing uh, the uh, amount of climate pollution that burning fossil fuels uh, causes uh, from our buildings right now. Again, it'll also make um, homes healthier uh, to live inside um, and lower the costs that customers are facing. We're seeing this, particularly this winter, um, that we're, uh, the Energy Information Administration just said that the average uh, cost of heating your home this winter, if you're using gas, is gonna increase more than by more than a quarter, by more than 25% this winter. So these investments uh, in from the Inflation Reduction Act will reduce those costs by improving the insulation um, and better sealing homes, as well as shifting from gas to electricity, where costs aren't increasing as fast uh, due to the uh, dramatic increase in fossil fuel prices across the country. So from reducing pollution to lowering costs to improving the health and safety of our homes and making them more resilient, uh, the building provisions are going to uh, transform the sector. Yeah, very exciting. And create a lot of jobs because what we know about the efficiency sector and electrification is these are all domestic jobs that uh, literally cannot be outsourced. <laughs> you have to have someone physically come to your home and do the installation. So that'll be an, another exciting component. Um, and for the listeners out there, we will be putting in the show notes links to all of these details so you can you know get more information about the various programs and incentives. Um, some of them, like the rebate program, and maybe I'll, Mark, I'll have you just dive a little bit into that so folks can better understand. Those are going to go through state energy offices, if I'm not mistaken. So maybe talk a little bit about what to expect here coming up next year. 
For sure. So um, the first programs to roll out will be the tax credits. Um, so those uh, that eligibility um, in most cases starts on January 1st, 2023. So you're going to want to be thinking ahead to what investments are you going to make over the next few years uh, and to determine your eligibility for those tax credits. The rebates are going to take longer to roll out. Um, and the reason for that is first, the Department of Energy has to develop the rules uh, by which state energy offices um, can uh, apply for the, that funding and get that funding. Um, then the state energy offices have to create uh, the rules themselves and the programs to distribute that money. Um, and that's going to take a number of months as well. So the rebates, again, which are um, for energy efficiency available to everyone who improves uh, the energy efficiency of their, their home by, by at least 25%, um, will probably start rolling out in about a year, year and a half. Um, again, for the electrification rebates, those are only available for uh, those earning under 150% of their area media income, and will be rolling about in about the same time frame. Um, so it's going to take uh, months to develop those programs, whereas the tax credits, those are available January 1st, 2023 for the most part. That's great, and thanks for clarifying that. And for those of you out there listening, uh, now's a good time to get in touch with your state energy offices and say, hey, are you guys going to make sure that we take advantage of these federal funds? Because it will be on the onus of state energy offices and governors and legislators, legislatures to uh, ensure those funds get um, taken advantage of and, and utilized in the appropriate manner. Um, great. So, and I, Jessica, I want to ask you the same question, sort of big picture. Uh, you talked about a lot of the provisions for not just the workforce and kind of the industrial green revolution that's underway, but also the transportation sector. So um, big picture, what are you hoping to see and expecting to see um, based on those, those exciting developments? Yeah. So in terms of the transportation sector, you know, for consumers, the IRA is going to bring down the cost of clean vehicles. Today, the cost of ownership of an electric vehicle is thousands of dollars cheaper than that of a comparable internal combustion engine or an ICE vehicle. But the IRA provides tax credits to consumers, as I mentioned, uh, to buy clean vehicles, including electric vehicles, to bring down that upfront sticker price. So that really should bring us closer to the Biden administration's target of 50% new EV sales by 2030. The IRA is also going to help to decarbonize the heavy-duty vehicle sector, which means reducing greenhouse gas emissions and local air pollution from things like long-haul trailers, transit and school buses, work trucks, garbage trucks, vans, all of those. So that's really huge because medium and heavy-duty vehicles represent over a quarter of greenhouse gas emissions from transportation in the U.S., even though they only represent about 5% of vehicles on the road. So because of the tax credits and the grants in the Inflation Reduction Act, we're going to see accelerated adoption of cleaner heavy-duty vehicles on the road. So that means climate progress, it means better air quality in our communities, especially those disproportionately burdened by air pollution from transportation. And then finally, uh, as I mentioned, the IRA also makes major investments in the actual manufacturing of these clean transportation technologies. It provides grants and loans and tax credits directly to manufacturers to build clean and electric vehicle uh, and their components, including EV charging infrastructure. So in kind of basic terms, the IRA is going to boost demand for clean vehicles and EV charging infrastructure 
again, really building, as, as Mark mentioned, on the uh, IIJA, or also called the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, uh, while also accelerating our supply chain capacity for these technologies. Yeah, absolutely. And um, <laughs> every time I have conversations around these two legis- these two pieces of legislation, it just sounds like we're alphabet souping the whole thing. <laughs> EJA, yes. IRA, IRA, IIJA. <laughs> so sorry, sorry, listeners, we had nothing to do with that. That you can talk to Congress about that. Um, that's that's really helpful. And I want to dig in a little bit on the so the new EV passenger tax credit, which is an extension of one that we've had around for quite some time. It's you know in its full form seventy five hundred, but there are some um, some imminent restrictions to qualify, including but not limited to um, the buyer's income, uh, the price of the vehicle the battery components and where it where they are sourced as well as the critical minerals and where they are sourced and then where the vehicle is manufactured. So layers of requirements that are all very important to, as you've pointed out, transition our transportation sector to be more sustainable and have uh, more longevity over the, um, you know, the coming decade. But can you talk a little bit about what you foresee happening as the the new requirements come into play and how the manufacturers are going to respond and how the auto industry is is likely to respond. Sure. So the the new clean vehicle tax credit is designed to lower the upfront cost of EVs for for car buyers. It is true that in the immediate term, uh, given the new requirements, not many vehicles will be eligible for the credit under the new requirements. That doesn't make them you know, more expensive or less available. It just means that OEMs wanting their vehicles to be eligible are going to have to work to adjust their supply chains. And we are seeing evidence, thankfully, uh, showing that they are already moving swiftly to bring their assembly facilities, their supply chains to the U.S. or to North America so that they can take advantage of and benefit from the, the EV tax credit's new manufacturing requirements. You know, every few days we're hearing of new investments being made by U.S. and foreign automakers in U.S. facilities. For example, GM's recent $4 billion investment in its Orion Township, Michigan facility, which is being retooled to build EV pickup trucks and is actually going to be retaining 1,000 good union jobs in that community and hopefully creating over 1,000 more. Uh, there's also Hyundai's planned new facility in Savannah, Georgia, where it will be, it will be building EVs and EV batteries for the U.S. market, and we've seen, you know, them accelerating their construction timelines in theory in order to meet these these new requirements of the tax credit. Now we do have a challenge here that we are facing that we need to make sure that the jobs in these facilities, you know, the jobs that really represent the future of the American auto sector, are good jobs with a free and fair choice to join a union. Um, but I think what these examples are really demonstrating is that companies are, you know, reading the writing on the wall. The Biden administration wants automakers to build here and is going to reward manufacturers with these new tax credits, with these new grants and loans, uh, which the IRA has just injected tons of resources into. So I think at the end of the day, you know, efforts to onshore the automotive supply chain to, to bring it to the U.S. are critically important for our economy and are going to be really worth it in the long run. The, the bounds on the new clean vehicle tax credit envision a future really where the United States is once again a leader in the modern global automotive sector as we once were. 
a future that's you know abundant with good paying manufacturing jobs that can be critical ladders to the middle class for people across the country. So we're really excited about the the possibility there. Yeah, absolutely. And um, from your perspective, I know Blue Green Alliance does a lot of work with the auto industry. In fact, um, the um, United Auto Workers recently joined Blue Green Alliance, which is very exciting. So tell us a little bit more about this announcement and how you see the workforce in the auto industry perceiving this transition to EVs and what it means for them. Yes, we are thrilled that UAW formally joined the Blue Green Alliance last month. And you know that, that announcement comes at a really important time in the domestic auto, auto industry. The industry is really at a crossroads with the U.S. poised to be a global leader in clean vehicle and electric vehicle manufacturing, helping to bring back high-scale, high-wage union jobs. Uh, and I think workers are really ready and eager to build the clean vehicles and clean vehicle technologies of the future. Uh, we did uh, a research project with the Economic Policy Institute that really shows that with the right policies in place, the transition to electric vehicles can protect and actually really create auto manufacturing jobs here in the U.S. So that's a really exciting prospect for auto manufacturing workers who have seen their work offshore into other countries in recent decades. Uh, just to maybe give an example, as you know, listeners may have, have heard, the, the Postal Service fleet is in the process of replacing and updating its delivery vehicle fleet. That means over 100,000 new postal delivery delivery vehicles will be hitting the road in the next few years. Workers for the contractor selected by USPS, Oshkosh Defense, are represented by UAW. And these UAW workers in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, have been fighting hard, really alongside our environmental partners, environmental advocates, to push the Postal Service to electrify. And they really want the experience of building the clean vehicles of the future. They know that the future of the auto market is electric, and they want to be part of it. So at the end of the day, you know, workers want good jobs, full stop. That means jobs with good, good wages, good benefits, upward mobility, and again, that free and fair choice to join a union. EV or not, these are the, the types of jobs that workers want. And you know, it's really up to policymakers and the OEMs to work together to make sure that the new jobs created by the bill uh, and the IRA and the fund acronyms uh, <laughs> meet that high bar. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mark, with respect to this energy efficiency, electrification, building retrofit movement that we're about to uh, jumpstart with, with all these um, incentives and programs, how are you feeling about the workforce there? And, and are there enough provisions in the bill to send the signal in a similar fashion uh, that we, you know, we want the HVAC industry and the appliance industry and the you know, various subsets of the building sector uh, workforce to really pivot towards efficiency, electrification, and, and decarbonized buildings. Absolutely. One of the uh, key provisions uh, in the rebate programs includes incentives for uh, contractors and $200 million in training for contractors to make sure that they are um, fully up to speed on the latest efficiency and electrification technologies and practices. Um, we're going to definitely need more contractors, more uh, electricians going forward. And so th those workforce training programs are vital uh, to the success of uh, this movement. Absolutely. And are you thinking that there are sufficient um, 
programs at the state level ready to move, or are those also going to have to ramp up quickly to to serve that training need and and that capacity? Yeah, and not just on training. Um, there are some amazing programs being run across the country uh, that link quality jobs uh, with uh, investments, particularly in low-income affordable housing. Um, I think about the Low-Income Weatherization Program, or LIWIP, in California that's run by the Association for Energy Affordability, the Build to Last Program in Philadelphia run by the Philadelphia Energy Authority, new programs in Chicago uh, by Elevate and New Jersey by the Green and Healthy Homes Initiative, New York with WEACT, that are investing in healthier housing, fixing health and safety repairs, uh, and uh, investing in efficiency and electrification together. These are the kinds of programs across the country that will uh, need to be scaled up um, to coincide with uh, the growth in funding from the Inflation Reduction Act. How those programs work together um, is going to be the kind of biggest challenge and opportunity for state energy offices as they're trying to figure out how to ensure all this money that's been invested in workforce training and in uh, the actual uh, technologies and buildings that we have. Um, that, that combination of braiding and stacking these funding and linking good quality standards uh, for the work that's being done, as Jessica mentioned, a lot of these programs come with the requirements that um, these technologies are uh, made in America. And that's the beautiful thing about all these building jobs doing efficiency and electrification is they can be um, creating quality jobs here in the U.S. And again, that key is how do all these programs work together most efficiently and most effectively? Absolutely. The implementation of both bills, both uh, the Infrastructure Act and Inflation Reduction Act, uh, will be the task at hand for the next foreseeable future. <laughs> Good uh, job security for those of us focused on those pieces, for sure. Um, I want to ask both of you to kind of forecast a little bit into the future. So a lot of the funding in the Inflation Reduction Act runs through the early 2030s. And speaking of implementation, um, what do you see as the biggest challenge? What what do we need to be really focused on to avoid uh, pitfalls and stumbling? And similarly, what's the biggest opportunity? Um, and Jessica, I'll start with you. Sure, thank you. So implementation, as you said, is both a tremendous challenge as well as a tremendous opportunity. A lot of the rules have yet to be written for this tremendous amount of funding coming out the door. So we have a, a huge opportunity to engage in the implementation process through the federal government, through state governments, uh, and, and other avenues to make sure that we really realize the full potential of this legislation, that we're really taking every opportunity to maximize the benefits of these dollars for workers and communities. Just to give one example on kind of the, the challenge and the opportunity, you know, as I mentioned, we are, are really focused on making sure that these huge investments in our manufacturing capacity create not only jobs, but good jobs. So there's some language in the statute to support workers and to protect the, the trade workers who will be building manufacturing facilities, installing the charging infrastructure, et cetera. But we also can't you know, just cross our fingers and hope that employers do right by their workers. So we want to make sure that federal investment only supports the highest quality jobs we don't yet have all of the guardrails we need to do that. So we have an opportunity through implementation to insert those guardrails. At the same time, engaging in this implementation process is 
a tremendous undertaking. It's uh, and capacity is a huge problem. I think for for advocates, for state agencies, other stakeholders that could benefit from these funds, even just at a fundamental starting point of, of knowing what's in the bill to begin with, where to look for information, who is eligible to access the funds, how to apply, and then having the, the resources to apply. Uh, podcasts like this are a great way to start getting some of that information out there. We also, Blue Green Alliance just released a, a user guide to the Inflation Reduction Act and a, a resource center to try to help provide some, some tools to both help educate on what's in the bill, as well as you know, what this implementation process looks like, how it works, what are the different levers that can be used in this process to, to try to ensure job quality and, and benefits for the climate as well as communities. But much more is going to be needed from a range of stakeholders to fill critical capacity gaps to ensure that folks really can access these new resources and particularly in the places that need them the most. Absolutely. Mark, how about you? I think the biggest challenge, uh, particularly for uh, low-income households, is how to make these programs uh, show up for a homeowner for a renter as seamlessly as possible, mm-hmm. right? So that for many of these programs have overlapping eligibilities um, and different criteria, they're going through different federal agencies and through different state agencies. Mm-hmm. And so how to make sure that accessing these this funding is as easy as possible for uh, particularly those, again, who are struggling to afford energy and stay in their homes right now, is the biggest challenge. The opportunity there is to uh, enable comprehensive one-stop shop programs where a household can just go to uh, that agency, that implementer, um, and get all the information. They only have to check their uh, income eligibility once. Mm -hmm. Make it as easy as possible for somebody to access these funds, to work with the contractor, to get the support they need. That's the big opportunity uh, that state agencies in particular uh, have to make it easy for people to access this funding. Yeah, couldn't agree with you more on that piece. As someone who just endured a, a, a renovation, uh, it's hard enough to do, you know, relatively straightforward, simple things. So, um, you know, adding other complexities and uh, particularly folks who work multiple jobs or have. Uh, odd hours, do not have internet access from their homes, um, you know, may not speak English as their first language. All of these barriers need to be considered upfront in the program design so that it is not uh, cumbersome, but also so there's trust and reputability uh, for folks going through these um, applications and getting the rebates and so on and so forth. So a call to all of the program designers out there, your your services are needed. And we have so many examples from the efficiency world to draw from. Like we've done, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. We know how to do things really well. We also know how to do them not very well. So using that lesson and uh, drawing from our history is, is going to be really important too. Um, kind of pivoting back to the, the clean energy workforce piece, Jessica, what tools exist and or are going to come from this bill that make these jobs available to people who want to get into the clean energy workforce? Maybe they're not already doing work along these lines, but are really excited about this opportunity and want to um, pivot in that direction. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think this is such an important question. You know, how do we make the jobs being created by this legislation not only good jobs, but ensure that they're accessible for everyone that wants them? You know, building a career in the the trades can and should represent a stable path into the middle class and into a job that pays well, offers benefits, and can support a family. This infusion of money into infrastructure, into these kinds of projects, is going to open a lot of those doors. And I think there's a couple of key tools we have that can help set people up for a successful career in these industries. And a couple of those are apprenticeship and pre-apprenticeship programs. And I mentioned apprenticeship programs as something being required for a number of the clean energy tax credits. You know, strong democratic unions really play a key role in promoting diversity, equity, justice, and inclusion within these programs. For example, we've found looking just at the construction industry, 43% of apprentices were people of color in union programs compared to 33% in non-union programs. Pre-apprenticeship programs in particular, and you know, some of the types of partnerships that Mark mentioned earlier in the building sector are, have become really a key tool to improving diversity in the building trades. These kinds of programs aim to ensure that workers can qualify for entry into an apprenticeship program and really have the skills they need to succeed. And they're generally designed to target certain populations or demographics like low-income workers, workers of color, women, their marginalized communities. And many unions also offer training kind of throughout a member's career to help them stay up to date with changes in technology or other changes in the sectors. So I think there's a lot of opportunity with these resources coming from the IRA and from the bipartisan infrastructure law to really drive the the demand for jobs, the demand for apprentices. And it's really important that we invest in the pre-apprenticeship and other labor union partnerships and training programs that can help uh, ensure pathways into those careers. Yes, absolutely. Apprenticeships are kind of a thing we sometimes forget about like this. they're very important and they used to be really common and now they're not as common um so that's great that there's such an emphasis on that in the bill um mark what about you uh, with respect to the contractor and uh the training programs and and this influx of rebates and incentives are there things out there to make people aware of that might be interested in getting into the buildings trade that could be uh, good to keep an eye on here in the next little while? Always. Um, I think uh, getting certified, um, you know, the Building Performance Institute um, runs fantastic certifications and is something to uh, pay attention to. And this kind of gets to the the broader uh, approach that's necessary, which is uh, planning ahead um, for these fund this funding to be available. Um, we talked about some of the biggest challenges um, to accessing this funding and making sure that it's going to where it's most needed. One of those challenges is that uh, the vast majority of replacements for uh, home appliances like furnaces and water heaters is done on an emergency basis, right? So making sure that um, uh, you're planning ahead, that a homeowner is thinking, uh, you know, getting in touch with their contractor now um, about what is necessary in order to switch out a p- replacement, uh, replace, um, you know, your water heater with a heat pump water heater, for instance, making sure that wiring is available. So a lot of this goes the same, whether you're a contractor or you're um, interested in getting in the field, you're getting interested in retrofitting your home, planning ahead is at the core of what's necessary um, to make sure that you're able to f- take full advantage of the opportunities that are present here. 
Yes, absolutely. And I can really attest. I um, swapped out my very old leaky gas stove a couple months ago for an induction stove, but the process took five steps because I had to you know, get the right electrical installed. I had to get the gas guy to come out and cap the old gas line, had to get a gas company guy come out because it was leaking as soon as we disconnected it and it was dangerous. So it was a, it was a multi-day process, but you know, I, I had a leg up on it because I knew, I knew about all this stuff. But for those who are unfamiliar, good to educate yourself about what is entailed and have those conversations early. Um, for sure. Um, well, we're running down on our time. There's still so much to talk about and, and unpack with this huge piece of legislation, but I want to um, just sort of close out on on a couple of questions. One to you both, we've talked about a lot, and there's so many great things to be excited about, but what do you consider to be the biggest benefit of the Inflation Reduction Act? Um, Mark, I'll kick it off with you. The biggest Absolutely. The biggest benefit I see is the massive reduction uh, in energy bills uh, and climate pollution that can come uh, from the, this, these investments being realized. That's particularly true, again, for low-income households. There are 26 million households earning less than 80% of their air median income that are burning health-damaging and climate-damaging fossil fuels inside those homes today. The investments uh, enabled by the Inflation Reduction Act are going to enable a vast, uh, a huge number of those homes to improve efficiency, lower bills, and reduce climate pollution. That's the biggest benefit. It's a down payment on what's necessary, right? It's not the full amount that we need. We need to reach all those uh, 26 million households over the next decade or so uh, to ensure that they're not stuck left on a leaking outdated, increasingly expensive gas system. That's the opportunity. That's the biggest benefit is to help primarily low-income households switch from health-damaging, climate-damaging fossil fuels to more efficient, energy-saving, healthy opportunities. Absolutely. Well said. Jessica, how about you? What do you consider to be the biggest benefit of the Inflation Reduction Act? I agree wholeheartedly with, with everything Mark just said. I think what, what I would add is really how the Inflation Reduction Act centers job quality and equity at the core of the bill. It, of course, represents a this game-changing investment in, in climate, in our economy, as we talked about. But I think really how it structures those investments, almost more so than what it invests in, is really what's going to be the biggest benefit of the IRA. So, you know, beyond the, the climate and the job quality quality elements of the bill that we've talked about, I think one piece we've talked a little bit less about so far is how the bill is really going to target those investments in underinvested in parts of this country, really the, the regions and the communities that need them the most. As we've been you know, transitioning and we continue to transition to a new, cleaner economy, we can't leave workers and communities behind. This bill is certainly not the, the be-all, end-all on this. It leaves some important gaps behind, but it does make some critical changes and investments in communities experiencing the economic impacts of this transition. So we, we have to choose to invest in keeping communities and workers whole and in the economic development and diversification of the regions really impacted by this, this energy transition. And the IRA includes a number of key provisions that are, that are going to help to that end. For example, it creates a whole new tax credit, a, a bonus tax credit that 
layers on top of the clean energy tax credits that we talked about earlier. And it, it prioritizes the, the projects that are developed in communities where a significant portion of the population historically worked in traditional energy sectors. It creates an another 10% bonus tax credit for projects that are developed in low-income communities. So the bill is really going to drive investments into the communities and the regions that really need to see these investments. And I think that's going to be a huge benefit and a real kind of game-changing investment from this bill. Yeah, absolutely. There's so much to be excited about. And uh, it's really going to be neat to be kind of on the ground, seeing how things transform over the next decade as a result, direct result of this law. Um, you know, I'm a policy nerd, so that's like my bread and butter. <laughs> um, so final question for you guys. Um, with respect to resources, we've talked about a ton and folks are going to be really hungry to learn more and get more information. Any one-stop shops or set of resources that you guys uh, would really recommend folks um, pay attention to to learn more about this exciting bill? And Jessica, I'll start with you. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually just released a pretty exciting resource center on both the bipartisan infrastructure law and the Inflation Reduction Act that houses a whole bunch of resources that we've put together at the Blue Green Alliance, uh, one of which I mentioned earlier, which is a, a user guide to the Inflation Reduction Act. We also have a user guide to the bipartisan infrastructure law, and it has a, a pretty nifty searchable uh, microsite where you can search by topic, you can search by agency, you can search by eligible entity. So if you're a, uh, a state agency, if you're a utility and you want to search by programs that you're eligible for, you can do that as well. And again, that's really aimed to help try to demystify some of this, uh, both what's in the bill, but also what the process for implementation is going to look like. So that's one resource also houses a number of fact sheets on some of the provisions. Um, there are also a number of resources that have come out from the administration and from other groups. Uh, so happy to, to share those, Sarah, for, for listeners who might want to access those. Yes, definitely. Please, we'll put them all in the show notes uh, with links so folks can access those. So that sounds like a great set of resources. Uh, Mark, how about you? Absolutely. Uh, ACEEE recently put out a, a great fact sheet that lays out the biggest programs um, that folks can uh, read. Um, we're also going to be working with our partners at RMI and the National Housing Trust and uh, other uh, organizations across the country to uh, host webinars uh, for each of the major federal housing and building programs um, so that people can hear directly from federal agencies and other stakeholders um, about what to expect. I think this is going to be particularly important as funding and uh, starts to roll from the federal government into the state energy offices, as we talked about. Um, we also hope to be creating model policy frameworks that uh, folks can engage with their state energy offices to answer some of the biggest un unanswered questions to date about how this funding is going to show up. Awesome. Great. Uh, well, and I would be remiss if I didn't give a plug for Energy Innovations resources. We've got a couple of research notes coming out soon, and they'll all be available through our website. Uh, but we dig into the 
buildings provisions, the transportation provisions, as well as the power sector and electricity provisions, uh, and provide some insight on their impacts on climate as well as jobs, but also a description of, of the various programs and incentives out there. So hopefully all of these will combine to make a, a little bit more streamlined process for folks wanting to, to learn more. And, um, for those of you who are not deep in the weeds, uh, reading legislation day in, day out, uh, they're designed to make you make it easier. So, um, well, Mark and Jessica, this has been a great conversation. Really appreciate all the, uh, details you've provided as well as the insight on the impact of this momentous and historic bill. So thanks so much for joining me for the podcast. Thank you so much, Sarah. Great time. Thank you for having me. Yeah, and keep up all the awesome work you guys are doing. It's super important, so I really appreciate it. Electrify This is an Energy Innovation original podcast. Energy Innovations, a nonpartisan energy policy firm delivering high-quality research and analysis to help policymakers and regulators pursue a decarbonized energy future. You can find more information about Energy Innovation and the podcast at energyinnovation.org forward slash electrify this. Continue to subscribe, follow, give us a five-star review if you like what you're hearing, and tell your friends. It helps expand our reach and impact. Um, and thanks, as always, to our sound engineer Rowan Stigner, the audio in here in Salt Lake City, Utah. And thanks to you all for listening. I'm your host, Sarah Baldwin, and you're plugged in to Electrify This. Mm-hmm.